The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. It's good to see all of you this morning. Grab your Bibles with me if you would as we prepare to hear from God's Word today. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we are. Last week we looked at the first three verses there, a little bit of four. Today our focus will be verses four through seven uh, together. Let's, uh, let's look again at verses 1 through 10. We'll read, them. we'll read them together this morning. It says, And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As I said last week, this really is a treasure trove here of verses, a place that you could spend a lot of time looking at and studying. Uh, Just a little recap of last week. We're all bad. We are all sinners. We cannot get away from that. We see that throughout Scripture, all over the place. And specifically, we focus on verses 1 through 3 there, where Paul comes right out and says, and you were dead in your trespasses. We can't, we can't avoid this. You can't get away from this. This is very strong language from the Apostle Paul as he talks to this church, reminding the people of the church who they once were apart from Christ. And he says, you were dead. That, that's, what you, that's what you were. You weren't just barely limping along. You weren't, you know, even in the ICU and, and barely hanging on. It wasn't that. You, you, were, you were dead in your sin. You can't get out of that. That, that is what sin does to us. It, it kills us. And Paul goes on and he says, this is because, first of all, you, you followed the course of this world. And we said specifically our, our sin nature and how as humans we are sinners. You sin because you're a sinner. I mean, that's, that's what happens that's be, that we see that in our first father, Adam. He sinned, and as a result of that, we have that as well in our life. And we carry that with us, and we, this is what we do. We sin consistently, and for most of us, sadly, very often as well. But then also, Paul uses some stronger language. Again, this is just a reminder. Not only do we sin, but we follow our master, who is Satan, in the sin this is hard, I think, for a lot of people to hear. It's hard to, to think about. Most average people, if you go out into the world today and say, yeah, you just follow Satan, they're going to take offense to that. They're not really going to like that. Uh, still today, very few people say, I worship Satan. It's still not a very popular thing to say or to think about. But Paul's very adamant here. As a sinner, this is what you do. You follow Satan, and you're actually a slave to sin, And you do the things that he desires for you to do. But then it gets to the really crushing part. 
after that, where we see, well, it's my sin nature. I sin because I'm a sinner. All right, maybe that could be on me. But then if Satan, I'm, I'm a slave to this sin and Satan is my master, how, how can all this sin be put on me? We see uh, Paul deal a real striking blow there in verse three, where he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. And what we see is we actually really love being that way. We love sinning. And so I did my best last week to try to help us to see that is the case. And if you're much like anybody, when you walk out of these doors, you don't think much about maybe what was said uh, in the service. But if this week you thought at all about sin and the struggles with sin, maybe you noticed some of the areas in your life where you really like your sin. Even as a Christian, I'm not doubting your faith. I'm not, I'm not doubting your salvation or anything. But even as a Christian, there's these sins that we just hold on to and we really enjoy. And for most of us, uh, the big sin is selfishness. The sin of selfishness and of pride, where we want everything to be about us all the time because we really like ourselves. We really love ourselves. We actually feel like most people don't love us enough. And so we try to make up for that within ourselves. I'll just love myself some more if they're not going to love me. And this is carrying out the desires of our flesh, the passions that we have within our flesh. This is what, this is what Paul is talking about there in the first three verses. And because of this, it says we are children of, of wrath. And so we talked a little bit last week about the wrath of God and what that means and how we see that in present day, but also the, the wrath of God that is to come uh, that we know that scripture speaks about. But then we got to verse four and we see those two words there that started with, but God, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a pastor. I like to reference a lot. I think he died in the eighties. Uh, but he said these two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole gospel when we get to this section. But God. And then that, that's kind of where we ended last week. But there's, there's more in this. And so my hope is to expand on verses 4 through 7 for us. But I'm thankful this morning that God did step in. Because again, just a reminder, if you're here today, and you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never been saved by his grace, I don't care if you've been at Monroe Missionary Baptist Church for 65 years, but if you've never done that, today you listen to me as a dead man or as a dead woman. You are dead in your sin, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to get out of it. You can be nice to me. You can give tithes to the church. You can go to Sunday school. You can do all of these different things, but it doesn't account for anything because it can't bring breath into a dead body doesn't work. And sin equals death. And so there has to be a solution for that. And thankfully this morning, we're going to look at the solution, but God. And the first thing that it says, look, it says, but God rich in mercy. Imagine if you would just for a second, the amount of mercy that it must take to turn wrath into generosity or to turn true justice into grace. If we fully comprehend the depth of our sin, which we need to strive to do, that is only when we can begin to understand the depth of God's mercy and what this means when it says he is rich in mercy. That's why verses one through three are so important. And it's hard because as Christians, sometimes we get accused of focusing on sin too much. Well, certain Christians, I guess some don't focus on it at all. 
But we get accused of focusing on it too much, but there's a reason for that. And it's because when I think about my sin and my struggles and what it does to me, what it does to people I love, what it does, what scripture says it does, all these things. But then I compare that to what God says he has done for me in his mercy. It is astounding to think about. But it doesn't become something big at all until I understand the true depth of my sin. And that's why as Christians, we don't just say, well, God saved me. I don't worry about my sin anymore. No, because I still struggle with sin. But the gospel message, the mercy that God pours out on me is new and fresh every single day. Now, that doesn't mean that every day I'm asking God to save me again and again and again. No, but I'm going to him every day, remembering Remember, remember God, remember what you did for me, how you saved me by your grace, how, how you've, have you forgiven me, how you've given me mercy when I deserve death, when I deserve judgment, when I deserve these things, your word tells me you didn't do that. In fact, you actually were rich in mercy. The audacity of this is just astounding and it's overwhelming when we really grasp it. A.W. Pink, he kind of, he kind of said it this way and I don't know if he would have said it this way today, but imagine, imagine a king, a grand splendored king, and he's single and he goes throughout all of the land to find him a spouse. And the woman he picks out is the dirtiest, ugliest, meanest, most, most wretched woman in the land. Everybody knows her. Nobody wants to be around her. They dodge that corner. They don't want to be anywhere near her. But yet the king goes to her and says, I want to marry you. Will you be my wife? For, for us, it makes a good movie. It seems really good today because it wasn't all about beauty. It wasn't about all this stuff. The king, the king just picked this one woman. And maybe, maybe in the movies, we would say, oh, that made, a, that made an, interesting, an interesting movie. But in real life, that would be shocking. I mean, why her? I mean, she's evil. She's rude to everybody all the time. But yet the king chose her. It, it would just sound ludicrous. This is kind of the picture of what has happened in God's mercy. We're dirty. We're sinful. We're enemies of his. All these things, but yet God would pour out his mercy on our life. And so this mercy of God really surpasses the example that A.W. Pink gave us there. But when we think about this mercy, Paul doesn't stop there because he says rich in mercy. This mercy has to flow from something. The mercy of God flows, we see, from the love of God, right? From the love of God. Because we might ask the question, why would God show this mercy to us? I haven't done anything to deserve this mercy or anything. So why would he do it? Well, the answer is he loves us. Look at verse four. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, this love of God, the driving force of God's mercy on us is the love that he has for us. The greatest act of love toward us that we see that God has done for us is the death of his son. We went through the Easter season not too long ago and we spent some time on Good Friday focusing on the blood of Christ, his death and his burial. This, the Bible tells us, scripture tells us, is how God shows to us 
that he loves us. This is how he, he proves it to us. We, we all have this in our life. We don't believe somebody if they just come to you and say, I love you. There has to be some backing to it. There has to be, well, how? I mean, what do you mean? What, what have you ever done for me to show me that you, you love me? Where, where is the proof? Because the proof isn't in the word that you just said that you loved me. I need to see this played out, right? I need to see what this looks like or how true it really is. Well, some might ask the same question of God. How can you prove to me that God loves me? Well, scripture tells us he's proven that through Jesus, 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God has proven his love to us by sending Christ to die for our sins and in our place and what we deserve, or Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now that verse is actually really important, Romans 5.8, because what we were talking about last week, about how you were dead, and I said it this morning, some of you sitting here today, you are dead in your sins. But the good news of the gospel is this, that we see in Romans 5.8, that we see here in Ephesians. You don't have to fancy yourself up before God for him to pour out his mercy and his love on you. Because scripture tells us he poured his love out on you when? While you were a sinner. While you were a sinner. While you were dead in your transgressions. That is when God showed his love to you. So maybe at a lot of places, in order to earn love, you got to do all kinds of things. you got to be nice to people. you got to buy people gifts. you got to be there for them all the time. Scripture tells us something very different about the love that God has shown us. We couldn't be there for him because we were dead. But yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I think if you've been a Christian very long, you can join with me in this statement of oftentimes we take this love for granted. Oftentimes, I know I do, I take this love for granted. Now, I think this is a common thing for us to take love for granted in a lot of relationships. If you're married today, I have no doubt, you take your spouse for granted sometimes. You just do. Uh, we, we all do that. I think it's, I think it's pretty common. It, and it's not because we don't love our spouse. It's just we still struggle with this whole sin thing. Even though we believe God has saved us by his grace and shows us his great love and his mercy, we still struggle with that. But if I were to say, raise your hands today if you have felt your spouse has took your love for granted, I think most of us would raise our hands. We'd say, I felt that way before. I felt like they took, took me for granted. And, but the reverse would be the same, that you have done that to them. Well, we do this to God as well. We take his, his great love for granted. We, we say we know about our sin. We say we know about Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, what all of that means, what all of that entails. But yet so often we walk around in this world kind of in a pity party, kind of upset about God because God, where's the next blessing? God, where's the next thing you're going to do for me? Where, when's the next time you are going to show me you love me? Because if I'm being honest, I don't really, I don't really feel it right now. 
Can I say, when we make those statements, we're, we're taking his love for granted. If the only thing he ever does for you, if the only thing he ever does for me is show me his mercy because of his love, that's enough. That, that's absolutely enough because he has conquered then death, hell, and the grave for me, my one true enemy. He's conquered it to where sin is no longer what he sees me as. I'm no longer dead in my transgressions, which we're going to get to here in a second. <clears throat> I want to read some other passages here that go along with what we have been talking about. But when we get hung up on our, on our own uh, sin, when we, when we take God's love for granted, one of the things that I hear from people Sometimes, and maybe you have felt this way. Maybe you're here today and you haven't trusted in Christ and this is the reason why, and I want to address it. I've had people come to me, this is numerous times, and say, I believe sin, I, be I believe the Bible, I believe the things that it's saying, but here's my struggle. I don't understand why God would love me. I don't, I don't, under, I don't understand that. If I'm really that bad in my sin, the whole mercy thing, the whole love thing, why would he do that? I'm having a really hard time grasping that. Now, sadly, there's people on the other side of the fence. They absolutely know why God loves them because they're awesome. I'm not talking to you today, if that's you. I'm talking to the other side of the fence. They say, I don't understand. I, don't, I really don't grasp why God would love me. They, they doubt the validity of God's love for them. Really, again, they would say, if, our, if in our sinfulness we really are dead and enemies of God, then why would God do this? I want to tell you what that is, and I think Scripture speaks of that. In of itself, that thought is sinful. That is a sinful thought. And what you are doing, if you're saying that, if you're saying there is no way God can love me, what you're doing is you are, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You're pushing the Holy Spirit away. As God in his word is telling you very clearly, this is what I've done. This is how I've shown my love for you. I sent my son to die for your sins. But you sit here today and you say, that's not enough for me. I'm too far gone. There's no way. You're minimizing the work of Christ. You're making yourself bigger. You're making yourself bigger than Jesus. You're making yourself grander and more important and more special. You might feel like what you're doing is acting like you're not special. I'm not special enough for God for love me. But in fact, you're doing the exact opposite. You're raising yourself up as if God couldn't reach you, as if God couldn't save you. When yet clearly scripture tells us that God has loved us, that God has sent his son for us. It tells me this. Yes, it tells me verses one through three, and I have to believe that. And I'm with you. When I look at verses one through three, the question that comes to mind is, why in the world would God love anybody? Why would he care about anybody? If everybody turns from him, nobody goes for him, everybody in their sin constantly turns from God and sins from God, then why would he love them? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Because scripture tells me in verses four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 of Ephesians chapter two, that he loves me, that he loves me. Now, listen, I might not always feel that way. I might not always feel like I should be loved because of sin in my life. But what I constantly get driven back to by the good grace of God 
are passages like these. Yes, Tim, you failed me again. But remember this. Remember Ephesians 1.4? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So the thought that we have, but this sin was really bad, God. You think before the foundation of the world, I didn't know this was going to happen. Tim, I chose you. I chose you. I've saved you. So even though, yes, you are, you feel unlovable. And to be honest, most people might not love you. I do. Why? Because I've chosen before the foundation of the world to love you. I've chosen to pour out my mercy on you. And I love you. And you can't separate me from that. You cannot separate me from that. This is good news for us. Right? He doesn't see us any longer as Christians, as sinners, or as outlaws. He doesn't see us as unworthy. He doesn't see us as unacceptable anymore. No, instead, he sees us what 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31 says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I really think that this section of Corinthians parallels well with what we're reading here in Ephesians. We see our unworthiness, but we also see God's plan there in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. We are not special in and of ourselves. All right, that's kind of a downer. But God uses us to show the world to be foolish. God God will raise you up and he shows the world to be foolish in what he is doing in your life and what he has done for you in your life. And if you notice there, at the end of 1 Corinthians, we get the same phrase that Paul uses many times in our section here. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a very important phrase. Two phrases, really, I've thought about this week. God loves you. What does that mean? But then also... What does it mean to be in Christ? Because Paul says that there, but he also says it in Ephesians, and he says it three times. He says it in three different ways when he talks about being in Christ. First, he says, we are alive in Christ. So look, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, what does that mean? with Christ, being alive in Christ. Well, we need to compare this with verse one because in verse one, I was told I'm dead, but now in verse four, it says I am alive in Christ. I'm not really sure if I need to explain that anymore to you. Uh, I don't think I do. You were dead. Now you're alive. Why? Because of Jesus, not because of you, not because of anything you can do, not because how pretty you are or how nice you are, whatever the case might be. We are alive in Christ, and it's because of him. Only God can bring life from death. Now, in our life, we do have success, and we see this, and I I label this kind of as fruit. I think a help here is John uh, 15. You remember 
John, the Gospel of John in chapter 15 is the section on uh, the vine and the branches section. And in John 15, verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Why? Why can you do nothing apart from Christ? Because you're dead. Dead people don't do anything. And so when it comes to real fruit, and I'm not talking about material blessings. I'm not talking about things that this world sees as beneficial. I'm, I'm talking about I'm talking about spiritual fruit where God is working inside of you and molding you and making you into the image of his son more and more every day. This is what I'm talking about. This only happens as we are in the vine, in Christ. And he makes us alive in Christ. Paul will explain our union with Christ coming up in Ephesians chapter 5 a little bit more, but he does it in the way of concerning husbands and wives. Uh, it's, a, it's, a ver- it's a section read at most weddings, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 or 32 or something like that. Uh, you can look at it where it talks about the role of the husband and the, the role of the wife and what that is supposed to look like. But it is pretty interesting because as you get to the end of that section in verse 32, he's just talked about husbands and wives and there's things that we can pull from there. But Paul says, the mystery is profound and I am saying this refers to Christ and to the church. And so when he's talking about the union of the husband and wife, when we see in scripture where it says the two will become one, the way that Paul then takes that to become one, he says, I'm actually talking about Christ and the church being one. That union of being in Christ, I think that's a good picture for us because a lot of us understand, again, that husband and wife thing and and being one because we talk about it a lot. But even the church being united in Christ as, as one. And so our life in Christ allows us to be seen by the Father just as Jesus himself. And I hope you grasp this this morning because this really is good stuff. When the Father saw Jesus in his perfection on earth, he also saw you in Christ. Catch that. As Jesus is walking around on this earth and he's doing everything right, before the foundation of the world, it tells us that Christ, that God chose you. And so he saw you in Christ in that moment as well. That's how he saw you. That's how he sees you. Even better than that, when Jesus died on that cross, the father saw you. Buried in the grave, he saw you, believer. And then resurrected from the dead, he saw you. Why? Because as a Christian, you are in Christ. Everything you are, everything you have is simply because of him. So in our first father, Adam, we have death. In Christ, we have life everlasting. I'm no longer as a Christian seen in the vein of Adam. He's not my daddy anymore, I guess you could say. I'm now seen in Christ But it doesn't just say I'm alive in Christ. Look, it goes on and it talks about us being seated in the heavenly places in Christ, right? And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. How? In Christ Jesus. When Paul says this here in the Greek, uh, this is a a term that is used to understand language because the, the Greek language is really difficult to understand. It's wrote here in the past tense indicative mood, okay? And so what that means is, first of all, no work on our part 
Well, when it's talked about here, seated us up in the heavenly places with him, it's wrote in this way that is understood as a past thing, but also holds a future, a future hope to it. And so what I want us to grasp this morning is if you are a Christian today, what this, what this is telling us, if you've been saved by God's grace, you're already seated in the heavenly places. Your place is secure. Your place is there. And it's with Christ, in Christ, through Christ. Now, your comeback might be, no, I'm not. I'm seated here. Are you saying this is heaven? No, it's not. Actually, I told my dad, the church smells a little this morning. It's bugging me. There's a stink to it. I don't know what it is. So I'm hoping that's not what heaven smells like. But what do you, what do you, what do we mean then? Well, I mean, it's as good as done. It's certain, sealed, 100%, beyond a shadow of a doubt, saved by God's grace, seated in the heavenly places with Christ and in Christ. That's the promise that we have. So we might not have gone with Jesus to heaven right now. We didn't get to experience that. But the eternal decree from all time is that we have, is that we have, we are with him. Think about what this means. This is why as Christians, we can actually sing songs. We can actually say, our home is in heaven with God. This is not our home. We can say that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Why? Because of his mercy that he's poured out on us through his love, through his great grace, because we are in Christ. This is no longer my home. My home is with him. My eternal fate is sealed in glory with him forever. That's why in John 3, John 3, 36, Jesus says this, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is a very pointed thing that Jesus would say. And it's still true for us today, for all of us in this room. For those of us who have believed in the son, we have eternal life. But for those who do not, the wrath of God still remains. Why? Because you are not in Christ. And the only way to see the wrath of God not being done on you is to trust that it was done on Christ and to be found in him. Well, then lastly, Paul goes on to say that we are shown immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness once again in Christ. And this statement really is a twofold statement. Number one is we see and we live in the riches of grace today and they're immeasurable. Again, only if we understand this in light of verses one through three. Now, only if we can do that do we understand the, rich, the richness and the immeasurable uh, things of his grace that he has given to us in our life. Right? We, we grasp that and we understand that. Trying to, again, trying to think about the free gift that God has given me for simply no reason other than that he loves me is astonishing. It, it's hard to do. It's hard to explain. To be honest, I feel completely inadequate in explaining that every time I try to you guys to try to grasp it. I feel like, I feel like I'm trying to explain some of the good things of life to teenagers. Have you ever tried to do that before to get them to understand, enjoy these years, grab them. They are good. And they're like, no, it's not. I got homework and stuff and it's horrible. And you're like, homework. I'd love to have just some homework. Are you kidding me? 
right? Try to explain that to teenagers. It's really hard and it's really difficult. That's what I feel like right now trying to explain the greatness of his grace in your life from the depth of your sin to his mercy and to his love. It's huge. I mean, it is astonishing to think. And so when we think about the immeasurable riches of his grace, this is what it's talking about. Again, I think it's so pointed that we understand this because so many churches and people pervert this. They, they turn the immeasurable riches into things we attain here. That doesn't compare to what this is really telling us. It's talking about the riches that he's already given us in Christ. It's Christ that is the riches. And we are in him. He is mine. I am his. I am seated with him. All things that are his are, are mine because of him. No thanks to me, but all in him. But also, there's a second part of this that I think is good. Because in here, we also see these riches that God shows as he shows mankind his riches by us. The fact that he's poured his grace out on you, church member, Christian, what God is doing is he is showing the world his riches in you. He's showing what he has done and what he continues to do one way that you could think of it is you are a living evangelistic advertisement board. You are the handiwork of God. Again, you can't brag about it, which we're going to get to in verses 8 through 10, because you've done nothing for it. There's nothing special about you we see in 1 Corinthians. In fact, it's a troubling verse. God's using what? The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And so if I raise my hand, I'm a Christian. I don't have much room to stand to say I'm great. I can say I'm foolish, but God uses us to show the riches and kindness of his love to others. The way we now live as believers, the way we now serve, the way we now honor the Lord, the way that we love each other, this shows the great grace of God to a lost and dying world. This shows them what God is capable of and what he is doing and continues to do. The change in us should be noticeable. It should be seen. Now, I know there's a struggle with that. Me and Pastor Spencer had to talk about this not too long ago. There's some of you here today, you were born into a Christian home. You went to a church your whole life. I mean, Pastor Scott played me a tape of one of our church services from 1984. And he's like, do you remember that? I'm like, no, I was one. I was there. I'm probably was there because my whole life has been in church. And so when I think about the noticeable change that people should see in Tim, it really just came with age also. I mean, it hasn't been some huge change. I, I can't stand up here and say, I was addicted to drugs and God brought me out of it. Nope. I was involved in human trafficking and this. No. I don't have, I was a, I've used to fight everybody. Nope. I was a heavy drinker. No, man. I used to cuss like a sailor. Nope. Never been a part of my life. Well, then what's the difference? What's the change? What's the noticeable change that should be happening in my life then as a Christian? To me, that answer is pretty simple. I once was dead and now I'm alive. I was dead in my transgressions and in my sins, and now I'm alive, and I live my life that way with joy, with hope, 
with peace, with trust, with gratitude, with thankfulness. And I do it all thankfully to him. It's him. Now, I'm not perfect in that, but I'm just trying to speak to those of you who have a testimony maybe like mine. Because when you hear there needs to be a noticeable change, I used to shudder in the pew thinking, I don't know what that looks like for me. I've always believed in God. I've always known about morals. I've always had these things. So then what should the change be? Fruits of the Spirit. The things that only God can produce in a life that is living. That's what we do as Christians. It's not some big, huge, extraordinary feat to most people in this world. But I'm going to continue to love you as a Christian, even when you don't deserve it. Why? That's what God tells me to do. And I hope people see it. I hope people notice it. I hope people ask me, Tim, how in the world can you love him? Wasn't, didn't he just make fun of you the other day? Yeah, that's all right. I got a neighbor like that. Everything in me, I want to, I can't say it. Everything in me wants to do it. Everything to this neighbor. Absolutely everything. So many times it's been in my mind. I'm walking over there and I'm telling him what I think. But I always step back. So far, God and his grace has always stepped back and say, is that what you do? Is that what you do? Are you loving your enemy? Uh, I know he's saying this to you. He's mad about this with you. You just pay that back. What good does that do? No, I hope that I can just keep being polite. doesn't mean I go over there and ask him to drink coffee or anything. Be polite. Try to do the things he asked me to do, not do, whatever it may be, and just be kind. And I hope he sees you don't deserve this, but I'm doing it anyways. I'm holding my tongue. That's a way for me to be different. That's a way for me to try to live out my living in Christ, in Christ. This is the focus, I think, of this section. This is the key of what it means to be in Christ. We realize as Paul talks, before we were not in Christ. We were children of wrath. But now we're children of God. Right? Before I was a slave to Satan, my master. But today, because of God's grace, I'm adopted by the king. And this is true for all of us in here this morning who've been saved by God's grace. We no longer have to look at verses one through three and say, this describes me. No, we get to go to verses four through 10 and say, this describes me because of Jesus. Oh, I still struggle with sin, but God doesn't see me in my sin anymore. He sees Jesus in his perfection. He sees Jesus on the cross. He sees Jesus in the resurrection. And this is what gives us hope as Christians, that because God has done this stuff for us, we have hope in the resurrection, in a true resurrection, that one day we will be with him. Why? Because Jesus was resurrected and I am in him. I am in him. And so I will be with him. God has promised me that and God has, has sealed that forever. It's an eternal decree forever. And as believers this morning, we have that. But again, as I said last week, I know there's people here today who do not have that. You have not by faith trusted in Jesus. And I would beg you to do that. I would plead with you to do that. 
to trust in him. If you, if you feel the urging of the Holy Spirit in your life saying, this is true, this is real, this is, this is you saying to you this, this morning, you, you feel this happening, saying, God saying, I love you. I love you. Jesus died for you. My son died for you this morning by faith. It's as simple as that. By faith, you say, God, I believe that you did this for me. And the Bible tells us that you will be forgiven of your sin. You will be saved by his grace. And that all these promises that we talked about today, adopted by the king, home is in heaven, all of that will be yours forever. Nobody can take it away from you, even you. That's an amazing thing. It's an amazing offer that I hope you will take this morning if you never have. For those of us who have, I hope we bask in it, bask in it. I hope we trust in it. I hope we think about it often because it is that thought, I believe, that truth that then helps us live a life that is noticeably different from the rest of the world. Let's bow together. Let's pray this morning. God, as we get ready to sing this song and respond to your word, I pray that we would do that. God, I pray for those people here this morning, no doubt, there are some who've never by faith believed in your great grace. God, I pray that you would do that work this morning, that this morning you would take a dead life and give it life in Christ. God, you continue to do that all over the world. We, we hear it happening. We see it happening. And God, we thank you that you do that work. It's just something that we can't do. I can't do that. I cannot save anyone. But God, you continue to do that. And I pray that you would do that this morning as well for someone here that maybe for the first time they're understanding your great love and that it's for them. That it's for them. So God, we trust you with that. God, for those of us who are saved, who are Christians, who've been Christian maybe a long time, God, renew in us that, that hope, that love that seems to fade for some reason over time. Help us to truly understand who we once were and who we are now. Because God, I believe that as we grasp that more and more, there will be a noticeable difference in our life, a greater joy, a greater hope, a greater peace that cannot be taken away. And so God, I pray that you would help us to grow in that way this morning as well. So God, we trust you during this time as we sing this song. Help it to be praise to you. But again, also help us to respond to your word how we should. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing together. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.